Good evening. <clears throat> Pastor Eric and I were just talking uh, a couple of minutes ago, and we decided that the crowd tonight cannot be predominantly Lutheran nor predominantly members of Bethel Bible Church because we're sitting toward the front. And in the Lutheran Church and Bethel Bible Church, you always sit toward the back. So thank you for moving forward. It makes us feel uh, much, much more comfortable. Thank you for being here again tonight. It's good to see you. For those of you that are coming back, thank you. For those of you that are first here, I uh, appreciate you joining with us. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm having a marvelous time. I haven't had this much fun for a long time. I'm learning a lot, uh, and it probably even more significant, I'm making connections with people in other congregations here in Tyler, uh, and that is just absolutely wonderful. And so glad to do that. Thank you for your support. Uh, just a couple of announcements. Uh, if you would like to donate, uh, Toward the, we don't have many expenses. Uh, we just had a few advertising expenses. We're close, but not quite there. If you'd like to donate to help with those, there's a brown box uh, on the back wall, and any donations would be uh, would be much appreciated. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to take a look at the Reformed part of the Reformation, the Reformed tradition. The Reformation really was a, a complicated, complex uh, series of events and had happenings in Germany and Rome and Switzerland and England. Uh, very, a lot happened. Uh, and so tonight we're going to look at, at, at the Reformed uh, tradition coming out of the Reformation. Next, uh, next uh, Thursday, we'll look at the Reformation in England, and Father uh, Matt Boltero will be talking with us. So fun to see some of these other dynamics going on uh, and all part of our, of our history. So let's begin tonight with a word of prayer, shall we? Holy God, we gather again. And we thank you for the privilege of doing that. As people of different traditions, of people of different communities, but as people united in you, Lord, we thank you for this chance to come together. We ask that you would be with us, bless our speakers, bless this time, and strengthen us all in you. For in your holy name we gather. Amen. I'm going to turn things over to Reverend Ben Wheeler, who's with Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and let him take it from here. Well, thank you. It's uh, my sincere pleasure to be with you all tonight. Um, it's an honor. Sometimes I wonder why God lets me speak anywhere to anybody, um, much less to a situation like this. Um, and I feel really privileged, really thankful for this opportunity, and I hope tonight's a blessing for you all. I've, uh, well, my name is Ben Wheeler, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. It's a, a new church that we started uh, two summers ago. Uh, we're actually coming up on our two-year anniversary in December of weekly worship. So very new body, very thankful for the, the youngness of that group and the vibrancy that comes from having a brand new place. There's lots to be uh, rejoicing about there. I'm thankful for uh, God's call to uh, us to this place. I'm the father of four. I got two kids in college, one in high school, and a fourth grader who's right there. Uh, and uh, so he's the one who'll be snoring before too long, probably. Uh, and my wife, Rachel, is here with me tonight. Uh, we are about to celebrate 21 years together, and they've been a great 21 years. So, um, so my name's Ben Wheeler. I'm from Tyler. I grew up here. Um, there's a couple of things you should know about me, is that, and one is that I have never been accused of being a church history expert, nor an expert in the languages. I don't have a PhD in theology. Several things I don't have. I am sure, in fact, that tonight will not be the definitive talk on the Reformed perspective of the Reformation. I am sure of that. But as a Tylerite who was here till he was 18 and went to Robert E. Lee and then went off to college and 
worked in various parts of the Midwest and eventually moved back here in 2011. As, as a Tylerite who was here for a long time and then who was also gone for about 20 years, I have a perspective that I think will be helpful to y'all. You see, I know basically who you are. I mean, I grew up at Grace Community, a church very similar to this. I've spent an extended period of time in Anglican communions. I have a cousin who's an Orthodox priest. I'm on a board of an Anglican mission down in the valley. I have a very good Catholic friend who's exposed me to the Ignatian exercises. Um, So I, I try to be a person who studies the tradition of the church, capital C church, the big moves of God's spirit in his people. And I'm trying to bring that perspective. My hope is to bring that perspective to Tylerites. My hope is to bring the gospel truth that God is always proclaiming in his word and in his church home to you tonight in hopefully a new and fresh way. I hope that you will be encouraged ultimately by the gospel of Christ, how he is at work saving this world, redeeming us broken people for his glory and the sake of his kingdom. I'm not that interested in merely educating you. I think education is probably overrated. (laughs) but I will be happy if I stir your heart. Like, I don't want you to walk out smarter and not wiser. I don't want you to walk out filled with learning and not love. I'll be a little bit upset if your ears are tickled, but your heart's not softened just a little bit. So that's kind of what I want to do tonight. And I thought about how to do this. There's lots that could be said, many ways it could be approached, but I decided ultimately to approach it through a scripture passage Um, The scripture passage is Isaiah 6, and I'm going to read that for us in a moment. Um, I think this is especially good because this passage um, highlights a key foundation of the reform perspective, and it's also one that was personally transformative to me as I began to understand what reform theology was all about. It's one that God used in my life in a mighty way. And so we're going to begin with some exegesis, and then I'm going to talk about, um, you know, this passage, for those of you aren't bringing it to mind, is about the glory of God and the holiness of God and the atonement of man. Those are three major themes in this passage. And, and I want us to look at the Reformation in light of the holiness of God. I want us to look at theology in light of the glory of God. And I want us to look at ecclesiology, that is Presbyterianism, or, or how we do church in light of the atonement of God. Those are my points. Uh, with that said, will you stand for me as we read Isaiah 6, as I read Isaiah 6 to you? This is Isaiah 6, 1 to 7, and I ask you to stand in honor of God's word. The prophet writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you. So just a brief moment of exegesis here. First of all, this cry by the angels towards the Lord is holy, holy, holy. Now, it's a common thing in the Hebrew language to repeat something for emphasis. But this is the only time in Scripture where something is repeated three times. And certainly the only time God is attributed uh, something and it's repeated three times. And the word is holy, holy, holy. I mean, it's so hard to translate this into English without sounding like an inarticulate fifth grade, you know, like really, really, really holy is kind of what you end up, or, or super duper holy. You know, our, our words just fail, and so we, I think we just have to skip or stick with this sort of foreignness of this and appreciate its gravity. Holy, holy, holy is this Lord of hosts. Holiness has this idea of being exalted or worthy of complete devotion. It's about being perfect in goodness and righteousness, and God is triple that, triple perfect, triple good, triple righteous. It also has this idea of otherness, something that's set apart, not ordinary. We can think of a penny found upon a ground that's indistinguishable from any other penny and just something we would put in our pocket and forget about. It's, it's so ordinary. It's so normal. God is not that. He is other. And of course, purity, I think we get that naturally without fault or blemish. One more thing about holiness I think we need to see is that there's an idea of weight with holiness. Like it's a heavy concept. It's a gravitas, that idea that this is a being to be reckoned with, I think is what I'm trying to say. God is important, 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 we could say. You cannot ignore, ignore, ignore if you get my drift. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the angels cry. And this crying out is a, a, a temple-filling, earth-shaking event. And I think we can conclude that God's holiness is a temple-filling, earth-shaking holiness. Whenever I read this statement about the train of his robe filling the temple, I think it shows what a Tylerite I am, that I always picture the same thing. I picture a certain queen in her gown, usually about this time of year. I picture the rose queen in this passage, and that seems so wrong, but it's simply the biggest train I've ever seen. God's train is not worthy of comparison with the rose queen. It fills the temple, and what's being uh, intimated by that is that it is uh, a, a wealth and extravagance that's hard to imagine. That it would run out and go back and forth and, and that's the only sort of robe that would be worthy of this being. It's a metaphor that speaks of glory that is simply hard to imagine. And these angels are so amazing in themselves flying about with six wings and as amazing as they are, they're not concerned at all with their own glory. It's all about him. It's all about God. That's where the focus is. 
And then the foundations shake. The, the gravity of this holiness is so significant that when it is cried out, the very earth shakes. And I'm, maybe the way best to think about that is the thing that we most think won't shake begins to shake. The unshakable, the earth itself seems so sure to us, and yet that is shaken. God's holiness is a temple-feeling, earth-shaking holiness. And his glory, likewise, not only fills the temple like his robe does, his glory fills the entire earth. The earth cannot contain this glory. It is overwhelming to the entire creation. And so in light of this vision, Isaiah responds extremely appropriately. In light of this glory, in light of this overwhelming majesty, Isaiah's response is completely appropriate. He begs for mercy. You see, in the face of this sort of purity and this sort of weight, we don't come and say, yeah, I tithe 10%, right? In the, in the face of this perfection, we're not tempted to offer our religious performance. We're not ever going to say, I teach Sunday school in the face of this glory, or I've been a member since 19 and whatever it was. No, in the face of this glory, we simply say, woe is me. We uh, can't help but realize our uncleanness. We can't help but see our need for atonement in the face of this. And God responds graciously as is his consistent pattern and he atones for the man. He sends an angel. And clearly this picture has to have all of us who trust in the atonement of Christ thinking about the ultimate atonement. Clearly this symbol, we shouldn't get distracted by wondering exactly what's going on here, but just know it's a picture of God atoning for man, of God covering men, of God making it okay for men to be in his presence. And what happened when I first heard this text preached in its fullness, what happened for me is that I realized my theology, my practice of church, my whole conception of the Christian life could not bear the weight of this God. That my church was way too small in my own brain. That my devotion, my piety was laughable. That my sacrifice is not worthy of even mentioning in light of this glory. And I begin to wonder, how can I make sense of this? What's the way forward? What's another way to think about who God is uh, how I live that can make sense of this being, this earth-shaking God. And thankfully, by God's grace, I was exposed to some very good teaching and some very kind people who led me into Reformed theology. And for me, that's what Reformed theology does, is it deals with the weight and glory of who God is, God's holiness or God's sovereignty. All those ideas are dealt with in the fore and brought to bear on the rest of our life. Here's how Hermine Bovink puts it in his work, Reformed Dogmatics, which was just recently translated in the last 10 years. If you're a true theology nerd, these four volumes are a must-have, and they're, they're very well written. I really enjoy them. Herman Bovink puts it this way, the reformed person does not rest until he has traced all things retrospectively to the divine decree. He has to track down the wherefore of things and has prospectively made all things subservient to the glory of God. 
in its essence, I think that's what Reformed theology is about, is it's the work of making all things subservient to the glory of God. Or it's like Abraham Kuyper said in the perhaps more well-known quote, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And so I began to realize that my theology could not handle that and I needed something more. And so what I want to do in light of that exegesis in my time that remains I don't like when my phone locks on me, uh, is to look at the Reformation in light of God's glory, to look at theology in light of God's, uh, I'm sorry, Reformation in light of God's holiness, theology in light of God's glory, and ecclesiology in light of God's atonement. I want to bring Isaiah 6 to bear on these topics that we have tonight. So in the Reformation, how do we look at the Reformation in light of God's holiness? When we go to the Reformation, we have to see God as sovereign over that, right? He's sovereign in that work, as, as difficult as it may be or as joyful as it may be for us. We have to begin by saying God is sovereign there. And of course, thankful for the good work he was doing in that time and in that place. The good theology which came from it and the purifying work he did through it are good for us, are good for his people, are good for the church. Both the Protestant growth out of it and the counter-reformation in the Catholic church uh, as a consequence of it, both are good things, things to be thankful for. You may feel that I'm leading up to a but here and that's because I am. But I can't help but look at the reformation and look at God's holiness and purity and not be tremendously sad that in the midst of God's people, there was a rift that separated us. That makes me sad. And it's like when I have, when someone gets divorced that I don't really know, I'm not passing judgment one way or the other. I'm just saying I'm sad that they got divorced regardless, right? That's my point with this reformation is there must be some sorrow in us as believers anytime we see God's people separated. Maybe it's somewhat like World War II. Like we rejoice in the victory that came from World War II and that evil was vanquished in a very real way. We rejoice that evil powers were kept at bay and that destructive forces were stopped. And yet we also mourn the death that came and the cost of it and the destruction throughout Europe and Japan and the um, Pacific Isles. You see, a very great good was done in World War II, but how much better would it have been if there was no war at all? That's my point. And of course, a major contrast between the split and the church in World War II is that our splits just keep running, don't they? We have not got to the end of this, nor will we ever until Christ comes back and makes it all right, of course. So my perspective on the Reformation in light of God's sovereignty and God's power and God's glory is I'm thankful for the good work he did there, and yet I'm mourning the division within God's church. The way I think about theology, the way that Reformed people and Presbyterians tried to think about theology is in light of God's glory. 
The roots of Reformed theology are most clearly seen in the work of Calvin, though there were some predecessors of him and certainly tons that came after him. But it was in his work and his institutes and his work there in Switzerland when we first began to see the classically Reformed theology crystallizing and Presbyterian ecclesiology working itself out from there. And of course, it's a whole lecture on the history of Reformed theology, and there's so much that could be said about it. And I, I decided ultimately I wanted to highlight three things, three aspects of Reformed theology for you tonight in light of God's glory that maybe would be helpful. Firstly, we seek to teach a gracious Calvinism. Now, raise your hand if you think gracious Calvinism is an oxymoron. <laughs> probably have never heard it before. But for those of you who are familiar with Calvinism, you're probably familiar with the acronym TULIP, which is commonly how the teachings of Calvinism are summarized. But that's a terrible summary of the teachings of Calvinism. You see, TULIP originated as a response to some critics of Calvinism. And it's a fine summary of the response to those critics. or it's a, it's a fine response to those critics, but it does not embody all that Calvinism is by any means. And in fact, when we begin to explain Calvinism in light of TULIP, we are starting with the very most difficult things. And it's always hard to build a bridge when you're starting at the widest point in the canyon, right? And so we seek to teach a gracious Calvinism. In contrast to the, the uh, parts of TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance to the saints, in, in contrast to laying those out and explaining all those five difficult teachings, I like to approach it this way. I like to ask the question, why am I a Christian? Why am I a Christian? And Calvinism would have us answer this way, because God chose me unconditionally. Because God chose me unconditionally. Why am I a Christian? Secondly, because Christ died for me personally. Why am I a Christian? Thirdly, because God made me alive when I was spiritually dead. And fourthly, why am I a Christian? Because God wants me forever and will preserve me. I should mention that I know there's tons of churches that teach this, right? Like, I, I'm not saying that uh, Reformed churches or Presbyterian churches certainly have the corner on the only biblical truth. But these are distinctives of our theology that I feel like we do a decent job highlighting, and so I wanted to bring them to you tonight. We seek to teach a, teach a gracious Calvinism. Secondly, we try to maintain a thick view of sin and grace a thick view of sin and grace. Now, this is a Kellerism, a Tim Keller, a pastor in our denomination. He uses this, so I'm straight up stealing it from him. They're not quoting directly beyond the, that initial statement. A thick view of sin is this idea that sin is a real problem for us, that sin in our lives and in our world is not easily cured that we in fact struggle with sin on an ongoing basis and that its consequences for those that we love and those that surround us is real and significant. The Westminster Standards say that every man breaks the law of God daily in thought, word, and deed. By any 
In another place, it says, what is sin? It's any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So any lack of conformity unto, that means that when we have failed to conform in any sense, we have at that point transgressed. We have failed to meet the standard. And so our issue with sin is not a minor one. It's not one that can be corrected by self-help groups or self-help books or, or the best support group or the best drugs or the best new truck or the best entertainment. It's not one that we can slay in our own power. We seek to have a thick view of sin. But that is matched with a thick view of grace. And see, it's a real irony of how our brains work that if there's not a problem, then the solution simply is not appreciated, is it? If there's no real need for medicine, if there's no sickness, then the medicine is tremendously underappreciated. But if we believe what God's word says about our problem with sin, then God's solution, his offer of grace becomes not just interesting, right? Not just fascinating or something we enjoy hearing about occasionally, but his offer of free grace to us becomes life. It becomes everything to us. I mean, remember what scripture says. It says we are dead in our trespasses, but made alive together in Christ. It says that the wages of our sin, what we deserve from sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. That there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Or as the writer of Hebrews puts it, we see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Through death, he destroyed death and delivered us. We try to keep a thick view of sin and grace because that is our hope. And in light of those two things, we teach that the gospel is central to all of life, that the gospel is not just about conversion. It's not about a decision we made when we were eight, potentially, or at summer camp that one time, that the gospel is the good news for Christ's life in us every day. All right, finally, I got about five minutes here. I want to talk about ecclesiology in light of God's atonement. And I don't want to, I'm not going to bore you with the details of Presbyterian ecclesiology, but I'm assuming that many of you aren't familiar with it. And so I just wanted to talk about a couple of things about Presbyterian ecclesiology that makes sense in light of God's atonement and makes sense in light of the things that I've already said. I mean, ultimately, the message of the atonement, of Christ's saving work on our behalf and, the, and the, the atonement that's symbolized in this passage here in Isaiah is that we can't save ourselves. Are we in agreement there? We can't save ourselves. Raise your hand if you're dependent upon your own righteous goodness, right? We know that we need something else. We know that we need atonement. We know that we need help. And what I love most about our Presbyterian ecclesiology about our approach to church government and uh, church operation is that it recognizes the depravity of man and its ongoing presence. And so we have a 
full system of checks and balances, so to put. We have systems of accountability and brotherhood and teamwork built in, of connection that is established there to help us, protect us, and guide us as we seek to walk forward. Specifically, my church, Redeemer, is a member of the North Texas Presbytery. And the Presbytery is just a geographical defined uh, area in which all the churches uh, in that area join together. We're members of one another and we meet four times a year to do business that's common to all the churches. We examine men for ordination, we pray for one another, we handle matters of finance and discipline that are there. And so we get, we get help, we experience God's grace through that connectionalism as we work together. Secondly, in the Presbyterian church, in addition to the connectionalism, there's a plurality of elders. We have um, both ruling elders and teaching elders, teaching elders being pastors, ruling elders being laymen who are ordained for the task of ruling elders. And this is not set up uh, in a strict hierarchy. The teaching elders, the phrase, are called the, the first among brothers or the first among equals. We set up a plurality that we can work together and help one another and guide one another. So we get help in this Presbyterian ecclesiology from connectionalism, from plurality of elders, and last we get help from our confession. I haven't talked about this yet, but Presbyterian churches, and certainly the Presbyterian Church in America, of which I'm a member, is a confessional church. That is, we have a confession, the Westminster Standards and the Larger and Shorter Catechism that serves as a summary of biblical theology that we ascribe to. In order to be ordained, you have to study it and know it and um, agree with it. And if there have any exceptions, you have to sort of register that. This helps guide us. It helps protect us from the errors of study with which we are all familiar and it helps inform us from the wisdom of ages past about how to live in the future. All right, one more thing as I wrap up here. It is a pleasure to be with y'all tonight, and I look forward to the question and answer period, which is going to happen after Eric speaks. But I think we should all be really thankful for how God is at work in our city. And not just a uh, powerless God, but actually this God from the temple is at work in our city. This holy God who's able to shake the very earth, this God whose glory is really beyond our conception, this God whose temple fill, whose robe fills the temple, this God is at work in our city and he is not weak. He is able to save. And as I've begun pastoring in this town, I've been so encouraged by the brothers in Christ I meet that are ministering in a variety of contexts by the sincere desire for us to put denominationalism behind us and to work together for the glory of Christ. And this doesn't mean we sacrifice our distinctions. It's not about that at all. It's just that we recognize the one who's Lord over all, the one who's torn down dividing walls, the one who loves us and makes us want to love others. I have seen him at work across denominational lines. I've seen him at work across cultural lines and geographical lines and any other sort of line that you would care to mention. It seems that he is at work erasing those for the sake of his body. And I think that we have to ask ourselves in light of that work, what is really worth fighting over? 
what is worth dying for? And what do we need to die to? What are the things we need to give up and let go of? What are the things that we need to be able to risk our lives for? And what are the things that simply are not worth fighting over? Thank you for your attention. Eric, it's all yours. We both knew I had to go Out the door before the dawn Leaving home so far behind Your voice fading from my mind I really could make this very brief and uh, easy to, to remember and to take away. We've heard so far from the, uh, the Lutheran perspective of the Reformation, and this evening we're hearing about the Reformed perspective, and really the only significant difference is the beards. So if you remember Mark Brayton back there, very smoothly shaven, uh, no flannel nor craft beer. Bet you don't even have a skull cap, do you, Mark? Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you, Ben. Wow, that was tremendous. Uh, I love hearing other men in our city uh, stand and lead and teach. So as Ben said, I want to echo that sentiment. It's a delight. It's a thrill to be here. Mark and I had been talking about doing this for months, and uh, to see it come to fruition is an absolute joy. It's an absolute thrill. I want to tell you a story as I get started, because I think this will help to sort of set the stage for my tradition's perspective on the Reformation and my own personal perspective on the Reformation. It's now been about 25 years. And some of you who know me have heard me tell this story before, but it's, uh, it's been about 25 years ago, and I was in college at a university in this state, in Waco, Texas, and I was having a horrible semester. Everything was going wrong that could go wrong. My grades were way down. I was flat broke, working two jobs. Uh, the girl that I was convinced the Lord Jesus had given me wanted nothing to do with me. That's a good feeling. I had had a pretty awful car wreck and uh, had lost the car that I had worked all summer to, to purchase. I had wrecked it, driven it right underneath a uh, moving semi. Always a bad idea. Mazda RX-7 meets flatbed trailer full of cinder blocks. Mazda RX-7 loses every time. So it was Thanksgiving, and I was driving from Waco, Texas, up to the Panhandle on Highway 287. And I'm driving north of Highway 287, and I'm just having all of these sort of existential crises. Like, I'm not even sure that I, I know what I'm going to do for here. I'm not even sure as I go home for Thanksgiving, I'm not even sure that I'm going to be coming back to school. My life is a wreck. I'm sort of in a downward spiral of depression, and I'm having those thoughts of just, man, I'm, I think I'm just, I've had it with life. I'm done. And as I'm driving up north on 287, I just happen to notice as I'm driving my, my at this point, my dad's car where the headliner was all hanging down. And so I'm driving like this because, you know, and I'm, I notice there's a guy walking up 287. He's just walking. I think, well, that's weird. This is like a pretty major thoroughfare. And that's weird. And as I drive past him, I go a little farther, and I just, something grabs a hold of me. i got to pick that guy up. I have never done that before, ever. 
I was raised by some of the most fearful parents you can imagine. You don't talk to strangers. You don't eat gum from under the table. You don't do those kinds of things. We're decent folk. But I drove further, and I just had to whip a U-turn, and so I did. I, I found a little meeting, and I turned through the intersection, and I came back, and I saw him, and there he was still walking north. Now I'm driving south. I found another turnabout. I made the U-turn, and I came up beside him, and I pulled up, and I stopped. And I leaned over, and I went, because that's how we had to do it back then. There was none of this. No, no. I rolled that moment, and I said, hey, do you, do you need a ride? He said, yeah, did you pass me and whip a U-turn? I'm like, oh, that's awkward. Yes, yes, I did. He said, well, why? I said, I just felt like you needed a ride. And then why'd you ask? <laughs> Gee, I, I, I don't, do you want a ride? And he, so he says, yes. And so he gets in, and we start driving, and it was, it was, it was fragrant, okay? It was, this guy hadn't seen moisture in any sort of cleansing, cleansing way in many, many months. And he was ranting off about all kinds of things, just talking about how awful life was. And really, I just wanted him to shut up so I could tell him how bad my life was. He never stopped. He just kept going. Finally, we can make it about, I don't know, 20, 30 miles. And he says, stop here. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is where I have to throw fists. Here we go. I'm going to, like, do this if he comes at me. He's gonna, this is where he's going to try to kill me. And he says, pull over here. And I said, Here? There's absolutely nothing out here. What are you doing? I was, I'm thinking, well, maybe he needs a restroom break. This is awkward. Oh, gosh. He says, no, I want to get out. I said, what? Now I'm taking it personally. Like, what do, you, what do you mean you want to get out? I should be the one that wants to get out. Why do you want to get out? He said, no, I'll stop here. I want to get out right now. I said, okay. So I pulled over. He opens the door. He gets out. He closes the door. He knocks on the window. Really? So I... <laughs> I roll it down, and he leans in, and he says, Gabriel's mouth is on the trumpet. Okay. So I leaned over, and I went, <laughs> and I put my blinker on, and I hooked him up to 87. I'm thinking, Gabriel's mouth is on the trumpet. Gabriel's mouth, what does that mean? And I looked in my rearview mirror. He was gone. Okay, so that's my story. <laughs> I want to talk about what that means in light of the Reformation because I made the whole thing up. It's not true. But it sure sounded true. And many of us in our day and age have heard stories an awful lot like that. And we think that must be true because it had some detail, it had some meaning, it made me feel a certain way. Oh my goodness, Gabriel's mouth's on the trumpet. It means he's about to blow this thing and the world's going to end and this goofy college kid's going to get out of his problems. That's what I'm looking forward to and we assume that that is true. So for me, really, what I want to talk about this evening is how can we know truth? Last week, Bishop Strickland from the Catholic Diocese began... And he rightly said, the issue is authority. The issue is authority. How can we know truth? This is the issue called epistemology. We don't need to get totally geeked out on this, but the issue is epistemology. I'm convinced it is probably the flint rock that starts the Reformation. How can we know truth? And the issue is authority. So I want to talk about that for a moment. 
Roman Catholicism, their position would say, and Father Joshua Nye last week and Bishop Strickland said the same thing, the position that that, uh, Roman Catholicism brings is that the church determines the gospel. In other words, if it's not for the church, nobody would know what the gospel is because we, the church, are the ones who conducted all the councils, who translated the scriptures, who explained all of its meaning. We tell the world what the gospel is. So this is, if you will allow very quickly, the graphical demonstration or the depiction of the Roman Catholic view of ecclesiastical history, that the church experienced formation in A.D. 33. You've seen that that the church goes through an establishing process and that somewhere around 1054, the Eastern Orthodox controversy splits and that church departs. And so from the Roman Catholic perspective, Eastern Orthodoxy departs somewhere around 1054 and they are no longer in the main lanes of the true church. Then we have all of these things that are going on that they would call corruption. The corruption of morals. Things go from bad to worse to really bad to OMG. I can't believe they're doing that. Which, they would say, is where a lot of people leave the true church, and that's where we have Protestantism. And they would say, we recognize that we had some issues. Therefore, we went through a period of restoration, and the true church continues on. That is the Roman Catholic view of ecclesiastical history. However, the Protestantism has a different approach. Protestantism says, no, the gospel determines the church. All the difference in the world there. That it is not the church that determines the gospel. It is the gospel that determines and defines what the church is. Luther reads the book of Galatians, and he says that this book is the Magna Carta of the church. It is our great grand charter. He goes on to say, because of his reading of Galatians, that the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Calvin agrees. Calvin said justification, being declared righteous, being determined to have right standing with God, is the hinge upon which true Christianity stands. And so conversely, here's how the Protestant view of ecclesiastical history would look. There is formulation, there is an articulation of the gospel. We get with the closure of the canon, we recognize that Eastern Orthodox, whether you go with Greek or Russian, whatever your flavor, departs from the true gospel. Because the gospel begins to be corrupted is the opinion of most Protestant Uh, thinkers and theologians, that the gospel begins to be corrupted with the institution and implementation of a sacramental system that requires merit, requires work and effort. And so Protestant theologians begin to say, there is a departure here, the true gospel is being corrupted. And so uh, the Protestant Reformation begins somewhere around the 16th century, actually probably before then, and then there is restoration. Those who adhere to the true gospel are in the main lanes of the church. That's what the Protestant perspective on ecclesiastical history would say. Calvin says this in response to the Roman Catholic accusation that this is new, therefore it can't be true. Calvin writes this, first, by calling it new, they do great wrong to God, whose sacred word does not deserve to be accused of novelty that it is lain long unknown and buried as the fault of man's impiety, 
Now, when it is restored to us by God's goodness, its claims to antiquity ought to be admitted, at least by right of recovery. So, the reformers say that the church is defined by the gospel and not the other way around. And so they come up with what is, I'm sure, a very familiar uh, sort of infrastructure for the Reformation. Ben's already mentioned the five points of Calvinism, but coming out of the Reformation, we also have the five solas. In Latin, we have sola scriptura. Now, it does not mean that only scripture, but that scripture is primary and preeminent in matters of theology, doctrine, and practice. It is the only infallible source of truth. This is what Luther and the other reformers are getting to. It is the only infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and inspired source of truth. And so I go back to, I would maintain that epistemology, how we come to know truth, is at the very heart and the crux of the Reformation. That scripture is the only infallible source of truth. Sola fide, justification, being declared righteous, is by faith alone. Sola gratia, justification, is by grace alone. Solus Christus, Jesus Christ alone is Lord and Savior. Soli Deo Gloria, all only to the glory of God alone. This is sort of the rallying cry, the summation of the five solas of the Reformation. Luther put it this way, speaking of the authority of Scripture. Luther writes, unless I am convinced by the testimony from Scripture or by evident reason, those two things, for I confide neither in the Pope nor in a council alone, and it is certain that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am held fast by the scriptures adduced by me, and by my and my conscience is held captive by God's word. And I neither can nor will revoke anything, seeing it is not safe to write to act against conscience. God help me. Amen. And as an homage to that little ditty, I brought my handy-dandy Martin Luther action figure. <laughs> Here I stand, I can do no other, said Luther. And so here he stands, he literally can do no other. There he is. But prior to Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the cathedral door of Wittenberg, it's already happening. God's word is already beginning to burst forth onto the scene. Already in the United Kingdom, in England specifically, we got these two guys doing their thing. We got Wycliffe, who very early is translating the Bible into English. This is ruled illegal. We've got Tyndale, who is also working to translate the Bible into English so that the people of God will have access to the word of God, so that they will know truth themselves. So by the time Luther nails his letter to the bulletin board of the church, there's already a couple hundred years things are going on in other parts of the world. So it's not that Luther begins it, it's that he's one more step in a very significant series of events. Then we have this guy, Erasmus, from Rotterdam in the Netherlands. If you want to send a thank you note to somebody for the Reformation, send it to Erasmus. He's the guy. Erasmus translates and compiles the full first Greek New Testament using a set of manuscripts called the Greek New Testament, called the Textus Receptus and the Latin Vulgate. He makes and compiles the first whole Greek New Testament. 
from which Luther reads Galatians and says, and I quote, Yahtzee, where has this been? I didn't get this before. And then Erasmus also publishes a diatribe on free will, which prompts Luther to respond with his writing, Bondage of the Will. And once bondage of the will is publicized, once it is out there, generally available for, for consumption by the populace, the pin and the grenade is pulled. There's no going back once bondage of the will is released. So it's Erasmus, who is a brilliant man, who never leaves the Catholic Church, who does not actually have a problem with the Reformation either. But it is he who really sort of shoves Luther into action. So if you're sitting at home this evening with nothing else to do, I'm going to catch up on my correspondences. Write a little thank you note to Erasmus. I think he's kind of the guy that gets this started. Now then, we're talking about truth and that the Reformation's hallmark is that Scripture is the only infallible source of truth. Where did they get that? In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 17, it's easy for me to remember because it's 1717, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, is praying for disciples of his. But not just the knuckle-draggers that are with him in Palestine at that time, he's also praying for all those that will come after praying to the Father. Father, do this. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Make them holy. Make them other. Make them different. Make them unique in this world, though it be a fallen context, a dark world with the, the thickness of sin as Ben talked about. Sanctify them. Make them different. Do it with your word. Your word is truth. So epistemologically, the reformers begin to say, wait a minute, authority is found in God's word principally and primarily, not found in the, the dynamic of apostolic succession in a church. Authority is found in God's word because God's word says that God's word is truth, and it is authoritative. So then, this is helpful to understand. We need a very quick summary of Western civilization. You would usually get this in an entire semester's class. You're going to get it in about three minutes. Here's a quick survey of Western civilization, three essential periods. We have the pre-modern age, essentially from Constantine declaring that Christianity is the official state religion of the Western world. The dawn, the beginning, the birthplace of Constantinianism, where in the Western world, Christianity is the de facto assumption of, the, of Western civilization. A lot of things are typical in this time. The existence of God is assumed. Everyone pretty much accepts the overarching big story of life. And this runs all the way through from about 400 to 1600 AD, give or take. Then we have the modern era, which is actually very brief. From about 1600 to 1900, what we have is called the modern era when the enlightenment dawns. Science, reason, understanding, data, measurement, repeatable processes, this is the modern era. And then from about uh, 1960 to current, we are in what's called the postmodern era. I know that because it's after modern. See, the label's right there. It tells you what's happening. It's after that which was modern. And so I want to describe a little bit about how the thinking of our world has changed because of those different eras of human history. And how we come to know truth and how that has been dealt with over the millennia. So this is what I call the stage of truth. 
This is, imagine this stage here or up on screen. This is the stage and there are a few players, a few actors, a few participants who are trying to get across meaning. Luther said there are essentially three actors on the stage of truth, three, three players, three components. Scripture, tradition, and by tradition, he meant all the theological learnings of the church, all of the learnings of doctrine up to that point, and reason. So scripture, tradition, and reason. Those are his three players on the stage of truth. And this is the pre-modern epistemology. This is how people come to know truth. On the front of the stage of truth is tradition. Right up here, it's the church that tells us what we know, what we believe, what's right and what is wrong. You've got people like Arius who read his Bible, reading John 3.16 says, hmm, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Hmm, begotten, begotten, begotten. Let's see. I was begotten. That guy was begotten. She was begotten. Jesus must have been begotten like us. In other words, he was a created being. And so Arius writes one of the very earliest praise tunes. It goes like this. There was a time when he was not. And he begins to sing this because he's a pastor and a preacher. And he teaches his followers that there was a time when Jesus was not. But then you have this guy. Oh, this guy, Athanasius, who says, no, 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 no. Hold on a second there. And he does battle, and he gets up to preach, and he leads his people, and he says, no, no, I got a different song for you. I want you to sing this. There was never a time when he was not. And he teaches his people of the preexistence of Christ. But a lot of people like Arius because he's a really winsome communicator. A lot of people like Athanasius because he's a really winsome communicator, and they both sound really smart, and they're both using their Bibles. What are you going to do? And so the emperor calls a council. All you guys come together. And I want you to hash this out. And so they come together, they fight about it, they describe it, da 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 and Athanasius wins the day. Based on God's word and the entirety and the completeness of God's word, they say, Jesus is preexistent. And it is declared dogma. This is what we believe. And Arianism, that Jesus is merely a created being, is declared heresy and it's kicked out of the church. And people say, hey, how did it go? Sorry, I couldn't get there. I had a thing in my village, and I, you know, I couldn't go. What happened? And the church says, this is what we believe. And so tradition holds sway. Yes, Scripture matters as people are trying to grapple and learn and discern truth, but most people are illiterate. They don't have access to God's Word, certainly in their own language. And reason, eh, that's hard. We'll leave that for the professionals. That's kind of the pre-modern way of dealing with and discerning truth. Then we have Reformation epistemology. This is where, in light of the printing press, now more people have access to God's word. Now more people are beginning to think, hey, I want to see what this says for myself. And so scripture rushes to the front and tradition gets a little bit bumped to the back. And now the church begins to feel threatened. And so this is also the same time when the Catholic church really begins to organize and it is more of the Roman Catholic church, establishing hierarchies and, and systems of rule and organization and administration from Rome. The Reformation changes epistemology. It is a very significant change in Western civilization. Now we say scripture is the foremost authority in matters of truth. Yes, Tradition still matters immensely, but we're also still going to continue to use reason.
So here's a quick uh, summary and survey of the Protestant movement. Stick with me, this goes pretty fast. First we have the Reformation, the Reformed tradition, starting in the 16th century AD. We've got, coming out of that, the Arminian tradition. So the reformers begin what they're doing. Jacobus Arminius is following Calvin, reading Calvin, loving him some Calvin, but then he dies. And his followers take all of his notes, and they compile them, and they kind of go in a little bit different direction than he ever intended. Because Arminius was actually a reformed guy. So we have the reformed tradition. Out of that comes the Arminian tradition. Now we've got people like Lutherans, people, you know, from Minnesota. we got... Lutherans, we got Calvinists, we got Presbyterians from Scotland, we got Reformed Baptists, okay? After that, now we're going to have all these Arminian traditions. We've got Methodists, we've got Wesleyans, Free Will Baptists, Church of Christ, Pentecostals, and Nazarenes. But wait, there's more. You remember the Catholics said, if you put God's word out there in people's hands, they're going to go all kinds of bat crazy. Guess what? Now there's more. Early part of the 19th century, we got the liberal tradition that really comes out of both the Reformed and the Arminian tradition. They say, hey, we're going to make up a whole bunch of stuff on our own, and truth, who needs it? Then we've got the charismatic tradition where feeling is more, experience, sensory uh, activity is the definer of what is true. How did it make me feel? What happened? What did I experience? That's the charismatic tradition. We have the fundamentalist tradition. They take the fun right out of fundamentalism is what they do there. It's all about legalism, all about the law, right? Then we've got the evangelical tradition that says, hey, we're going to really focus principally, primarily on God's word. And now we get to really enjoy this thing called the postmodern tradition where it's all about feelings and wearing hemp and eating quinoa and planting trees. And I don't really know what else is happening there. But this is sort of what has happened now that God's word has made its way into everybody's hands. So at the same time, all those things are starting to happen. Here's the early modern epistemology. Suddenly, reason rushes to the front. Now we can measure things. Now we can report on things. Scripture's important, but those guys in the church, man, they were wrong. They said that the sun went around the earth. They were wrong. And in fact, not only were they wrong, they got mad at Galileo for saying that the earth went around the sun and other things. And so the people of that age begin to have a distrust of tradition, of church dogma and teaching. And so tradition starts to go to the back of the stage. Reason rushes to the front. Scripture's still here, but now people are starting to figure things out on their own, which leads us to later modern epistemology. Some of you were born and raised in this where it's all about science and data and what we can measure. And the way we know truth is, can we measure it? Can we observe it? Can we touch it, feel it, smell it, taste it, and sniff it? That's how we know truth. And so scripture, it's still there, but it's kind of off the stage. And tradition, who needs it? We can figure this stuff out on our own. This sort of thinking of how we come to know truth by whether we can see it and prove it with scientific processes or not, that has become, for a large part of the 20th century how people discern truth. But the 20th century wrecked a good many epistemology because we are thinking, hey, we can figure all of these things out. We can make it better. We can improve and evolve as a species. But then you had this thing that happened in April of 1912 where a very large ship went gurgle when they said not even God himself could sink this ship, the Titanic. The culmination of all of our engineering and ability goes down. Now we have World War I 
where all of our technological advances are really just used to slaughter one another. Then we have World War II, where all of our technological lurches forward are used to kill people in mass, mass numbers. Now we have delivery mechanisms to show and to, and to shoot mustard gas right into the middle of an opposing army. Now we have tanks, aircraft dropping artillery shells. Wow, the more things get better, the more we use it to destroy one another. Maybe things aren't getting better after all. And so there begins to be a very healthy skepticism of technology. Like, I'm not sure what all the world is happening, but I'm pretty sure everything that advances technologically is causing me cancer. That becomes sort of the new idea. And so what ends up happening is we come into the late 60s and to now, even reason is kicked off the stage of truth. And so now you live in an age where people will say, you can't know truth with certainty. It's not that there's no such thing as truth. It's that there's no infallible source of truth. What's true for you is true for you, and that's groovy. What's true for me is true for me. Let's not worry about it. This is the world in which we now live. However, we would contend that there is a better way. Out of the Reformation, I contend this is what, as we arrive in the 21st century, this is the evangelical Christian epistemology. We could spend forever on this. I'm not going to. Just know that what Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the other guys come up with is this is how we come to know truth, which is immensely important for people's practical walking around everyday lives. This is how we know which is truth. We start with God's word. Yes, we employ tradition. We, we lean on the learnings of Irenaeus and Tertullian and Justin Martyr and Anselm of Canterbury and Peter Lombard, and we keep going. We even learn from guys like C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller. And we do employ those things, but we also use our reason, the faculties that God has given us. We employ general revelation. What do I observe in the cosmos that reveals to me what God is like? He's big, he's sovereign, he's holy, holy, holy. And at the back of the stage of truth, it is a part of our understanding of truth, is emotion and experience. Where we run into trouble... And the Reformation has been so practical and pertinent for me is we as a species have a tendency in this day and age to move experience and emotion to the front of the stage of truth and make our decisions thus. Always a bad idea. Always dangerous. This is how we as Christians, net of the Reformation, I would contend, are to discern truth. Now, again, with that, can, that accusation, if it's true, or if it's new, it ain't true, and if it's true, it ain't new. This is called the fallacy of origin. It's a mistake to say that just because something is new, that it is not true. That's an error. Throughout the writing of Scripture, there's always progressive revelation. David knew more than Moses. Elijah knew more than David. Malachi knew more than Elijah. Matthew knew more than Malachi. Paul knew more than Matthew. There's always progressive revelation. Things develop throughout the writing of Scripture. And then after Scripture, there is what we will call progressive illumination. We know more now than they did then. The, doc the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is not really officially codified until about the 12th century. It does not mean they didn't believe it before then or that any nobody was saved. It's just not formally codified until then. We continually progressively learn more. Also, John's Cal John Calvin's remark on newness that we've already read. Out of the Reformation comes a relatively recent approach at rightly dividing God's word. It's called hermeneutics, merely the lens through which we read God's word. How do we read it? And Luther sits down with 2 Corinthians 3, 6 that talks about the letter of the law brings death, but the spirit of law gives life. And he utterly rebukes 
the principally allegorical approach to interpreting scripture that is, has existed up until his time, and he moves the church, because of the Reformation, into a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of scripture, all because of how he sits down and reads 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Coming out of the Reformation then, you've essentially got two concurrent, side-by-side, -side, contemporary streams of people doing the Reformed tradition in Europe at that time. One of which is what Ben's already described to us, that which is ultimately codified into the Westminster Catechism, Presbyterianism and those sorts of traditions. Side-by-side, -side, there is in Northern Europe circulating without ever being codified or denominationalized is this tradition called dispensationalism. They're side by side, they're happening at the same time, but for whatever reason, those guys decided we're not going to codify it, we're not going to catechize it, we're not going to denominationalize it, but they're happening side by side. In North America, a little bit later on, you've got Princeton University, sort of the, the central bastion of Reformed theology. But somewhere in the late 1800s, Princeton decides we're going to abandon a conservative hermeneutic, we're going to start getting really liberal and very... Um, allegorical again. And so people go screaming out of Princeton after B.B. Warfield dies. People go running out in droves. And there's two seminaries that are immediately built to deal with this desire and need for conservative uh, evangelical theology in America. The first is Westminster Seminary. Ben Wheeler is a graduate of Westminster. Amen? Amen. The other is started when C.I. Schofield gives his library to a little seminary in Dallas, Texas. It's called the Evangelical Theological Seminary. Now change their names to Dallas Theological Seminary. Those two streams from our tradition come out of Princeton moving away. And so here's from my tradition. Here are these really good-looking dudes. And you can see over time they get progressively happier, which is nice. You got John Nelson Darby, who was a 19th century Irish guy who begins meeting with a group of people, and they call themselves the Plymouth Brethren in England. Comes over to America, and they begin sponsoring what they call Bible conferences all over the country, and they're simply doing expository teaching. What does God's word say? What does it mean? What do we do? And the guys like C.I. Schofield and Lewis Berry Chafer and ultimately Charles Ryrie, who I was convinced was the man that wrote the Bible until I was 18. I thought it was Charles Ryrie. These guys continue that idea of expository teaching, and they give us something like this. I'm not going to spend time on it, but the approach is, and this is why I love what Reformation does. It helps us go to God's word and say, what did it mean to them there and then? What did it mean to Paul's readers in Galatia? What did it mean to Matthew's readers of his gospel? What did it mean to the readers of the letter to the Hebrews? What did it mean to them then and there? We discern that. We figure out how does that apply to all people at all times in all places, and then we drop down in the lower right-hand quadrant and say, how does it apply to us today? This is what the Reformation gives us so that we can begin to handle God's word ourselves and discern truth ourselves. So in our tradition, this produces a unique distinctive, reading scripture that way, and it's not a theological system, it's a system of interpretation. It creates a distinctive within evangelicalism that Israel has not been replaced by the church. It's one of the things that makes us a little bit different in this place than most others is we don't believe that Israel has been divorced by God and is that God is done with Israel. There is still a plan there. Therefore, I am not a priest in the sense of an uh, in the sense that the nation of Israel had priests, that there is still a plan 
We would go to places like Jeremiah 31, Romans chapter 9 to 11. He's still going to fulfill his promises to Israel. Now, is this the kind of stuff where we need to roll up our sleeves and fight one another in the alleys? No. It's the kind of thing where Ben and I walk across the street to ETX Brewing and we have a frosty beverage and we talk about it good-naturedly. This is the kind of stuff that the Reformation allows us to do. This interpretation determines then the practice that we do to ordinances rather than multiple sacraments. Since the church has not replaced Israel, it's a different deal entirely. We would say that's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 2. The dividing wall has been torn down. There's a new thing. We practice two ordinances, communion and baptism. So I just want to speak about those very briefly, or just about communion. You heard Father Nye and Bishop Strickland talk about the Roman Catholic observation and practice, the sacrament of communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Their title would be transubstantiation, that the elements literally, physiologically change and turn into the body and the blood of Christ. A couple weeks ago, you heard Pastor Brayton talk about the Lutheran tradition of consubstantiation, where Luther at the uh, Marburg Colloquy says, hoc est corpus meum, and he carves it into a table, saying, this is my body, quoting from the Gospel of John. And so in the Lutheran tradition, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, as long as I'm not here to hear you, correct me when I'm wrong, Mark. In the Lutheran tradition, it's all about the presence, that the presence is around, beneath, above, below, and next to those elements. In, in, all right, Blaine. You'll have your say later, mister. Yeah, okay, in, around, beyond, through, sideways, and right? In, okay, there we go. Consubstantiation, whereas the Reformed tradition we would call it memorial. Neither of those substantiations but memorial. Thomas Cranmer, really fun-looking dude down there, he really does the significant writing that says it is memorial. I would add to that, we would say it is memorial and it is mysterious. There is something happens. I won't read all of 1 Corinthians 11. It's a familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul says, this is what the Lord told me. This is how we are to do communion. However, some of you, are not taking it seriously. Some of you are not paying attention. And that's why some of you are sick and weak and dead. So clearly, it's a little bit more than merely a memorial. There's something mysterious happening there. I don't know. But uh, that's why we use sola bread for our communion bread. Because we don't want anybody falling out. All right? So then, final slide at long last. What is the church? As we come out of through the Reformation, standing on 500 years, what is the church? I'm thankful for the Reformers because, as Ben said, they have provided their work, their convictions, their learning, their prayer, their devotion to the glory of God has provided now in our world an infrastructure where billions of people have access to God's truth. I can't imagine a single element, a single resource that is more vital in the life of every human being that has ever lived. So we would say this, the church is the new covenant community of the spirit. A Christian, Paul says in Romans 8, is anyone who is indwelled by God's spirit. And so the space between each one of you, if you are a believer, is holy ground because the spirit of God himself dwell, indwells every believer. And the church is that community across denominational lines in which people who are indwelled by God's spirit enjoy community together now and for always. And so just get a quick glimpse. Look around. Every other believer in this room 
is someone you will never not know for all eternity. And that's very good news. Peter, trying to write to this group of people in the regions of now northeast Turkey, trying to explain to them who they are, what they're doing there. It says, do you not know how great a deal you are, what the church is? You come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You, every believer in Galatia, and therefore by extension, us, you are a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews will pick up on that and nuance it even further. You're not even in the, in the line of Aaron. You're not even from the tribe of Judah. You are Melchizedekian. That's how big of a deal you are because you, believer, are in Christ. He was the priest king, and you are found in him. It's a very big deal to be alive and to be a part of the church in this age. He continues in chapter 4. Each has received, if you are a believer... You are a recipient of a gift, a supernatural amplification of some aspect of the image of God with which you were created. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that's the church according to our tradition. I went a little bit long. None from Bethel will be surprised to hear that. It's normative. But I would like to ask Ben, if you don't mind coming back up, we're going to have uh, a season of some question and answer, if that's okay. Let me find a microphone for you, Ben. And if you ask a question, Mark Brayton is going to put a microphone in your face. Well, so. While they're looking for the mics, I will say thank you to both uh, Eric and Ben. Appreciate it very much. Now I've got more to think about this week. I mean, I'm, I'm going to brain overload here. But wonderful. Appreciate it. Uh, any questions? Any questions for the speakers? Here comes the mic man. <laughs> I was very clear about the microphone, okay? Luther, you got to follow the rules. Of elders in the Presbyterian Church, is that open to men and women, or is it just men? Uh, you know, I didn't distinguish between branches of the Presbyterian Church at the start. I had intended to, but um, the largest Presbyterian denomination in America is the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, and that's the mainline denomination that uh, does ordain women um, as well as uh, homosexuals and everything. That's pretty much gone as. as um, broad-minded as you can go on that. Um, I'm a member of the Presbyterian Church in America, which does not ordain uh, women to that office. Uh, there's also, also the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, of which John Johnson's a member. That's uh, Tyler Prez that's out by Gresham. Uh, they would be in the same camp as us in terms of conservative no, I tradition. Mean, you're, okay, you're, I'm sorry, did like I? Like, we have a church council. Yes. And men and women can be on the council. And you have, don't you have something like that? On the, the session, which is made up of elders, is, is men only. There's not a vestry, which you may be, is that what you're thinking of, that's in the Episcopal Church? That would be? Yeah, yeah what, what, what the Episcopal call a vestry, we would call a church council. Okay. 
Yeah, we have lots of committees that uh, women are free to serve on, but in terms of the elders who rule the church, we believe that's restricted by Scripture to men. Lane? He's going to rush the stage. No, no, you first. That's a bad uh, question. My question is for, for Eric. So uh, my primary vocation is as a high school teacher, a teacher of English. And um, more than anything, I am uniquely aware of problems in reading. Um, I am not so fascinated as a teacher by how students get it right, but more by how they get it wrong. And my experience in my own reading is that more often than not, I get it wrong than I get it right. My experience as a teacher has lessened my faith in the ability of each individual to get it right in terms of reading and has expanded on my faith, my greater faith in a reading community. So my question for you is, um, in light of how often people get it wrong in terms of reading, how do you have such great faith in people getting it right? Great question, and I don't at all. And so we always say, we always want to do theology in community. Ironically, meaning peaceably, always, always, and God's word is accessible. You don't have to be trained in ancient languages to understand what God has revealed. There are some things that are very clear, and there are a lot of things that we don't understand in Scripture that we have a tendency to want to make a, a lot of big deals about, i.e. things of the end times that we, we're not given a whole lot of information. But there are a whole lot of things that we can know with a whole lot of certainty and confidence, i.e. God is trustworthy. He is strong. He is good all the time. Jesus loves us. Those are the kinds of things that I would want to encourage people to spend more time devotionally reading, understanding that all of us, all of us are prone to error. And all of us, because theology is a human endeavor, all of us believe something wrong about God. And so it produces within us uh, a necessary requisite humility to say, man, I don't know about this. I think but I, I'm willing to hold that loosely. And I think that is a strengthening mortar in the church when we can say, I don't know about that, Ben. That's, you guys do that? We don't, I, I don't know. But I think that is necessary to recognize that we do get it wrong, but getting it wrong does not prohibit us from reading. Does that oh, make sense? I wouldn't say it prohibits us from reading. I would, I would simply say, and I'm not even talking about theology. I'm just talking about the ways that you get it wrong when you read a text. Adding something in that isn't there subtracting something that is there out of it, taking something literally that is meant to be a metaphor mm -hmm. or understanding something metaphorically that, that should be literal. Yeah. Like the Colloquy of Marburg, the argument between Zwingli and Luther is all about whether or not you should read this is my body in a literal fashion or in an allegorical fashion. So, you know, when you say that Luther is reading something allegorically or is jettisoning the allegorical aspects, he is, but he's at the same time, he's saying that there's so much more happening at the same time. So Zwingli's saying, no, that's allegory. So there's, there's this tension here in reading. And, you know, Augustine, who really is our father in hermeneutics in the West, says, you know, that we don't learn our ABCs from the Holy Spirit. Meaning that we have to learn how to read to be able to even form sentences or understand um, individual words. So my, my, I guess my question is, 
Oh, there's still a question? Oh, there is. Oh, man. I'm sorry. I kind of blanked out there for a second. Come on. Come on. Uh, the, the, the question is, is I, what are we doing in churches to help people read better? Yeah. Because I think that's a big legacy from the Reformation. Uh, absolutely. Um, and I don't know the answer to that question, Blaine, in, in complete transparency. I know we want to continue to make God's word accessible to God's people. So that's a matter of specifically dealing with theology. On the whole, um, and I think that the church, this church, this church, the church, ought to be very involved in education. No, education does not solve the world's problems. I don't believe that. It's a sin problem. Sin's thick, and education doesn't solve sin. But I do think we want to be involved in equipping people to think rightly, the more that we can do that. Now, by the way, Blaine's going to be speaking in two weeks. So that was a nice little primer there, and I'm going to be here ready for you, big fella. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I, I don't have a great answer to your question, but Ben, I'd love for you to chime back in on that. Well, I was just going to say to the, to the idea of helping people read, you know, we always have at least three scripture readings as part of our service each week. We read a psalm responsibly, uh, a, a reading from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I, I used to think that was an empty tradition and let's not waste our corporate time reading when we all have it at home and we can read it. Um, and now that's one of my favorite parts of the service is when God's people come to his word together, especially doing that psalm responsibly because um, we get to speak it to one another. It's great. Should we do one, one more question? Well, if they're like that, no. No. Yeah. But. One more shorter question. Yes. <laughs> okay, I can't promise to not be like that. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> thank you all so much for taking this on to talk about 500 years of Protestant history outside of the Lutheran tradition in an hour and a half, and then take questions on it is huge and there's and and we could probably do another whole six part series on <laughs> on the whole thing and and what you know like you said Eric about um the covenantal you know versus dispensational theology etc so thank you for taking it on for us and for our uh to bless us um I have a question about the the future <laughs> I know you're gonna be able to answer this but I think um you know the church has been the church was kind of sideswiped by postmodernism. we didn't know uh that it was coming we couldn't predict it um there's an argument that I read recently which I thought was really interesting about um kind of what's coming next in our cultural philosophy uh here in America at least and and maybe just in the west in general but um, which is that uh, the postmodern idea of um, things being really, you know, relative is out. If we read the news, people are not feeling relative about things. You know, people are feeling really sure about a lot of a, a wide variety of things, but they're not like, eh, you know, you can be, um, you know, I don't know, I can't take the last election. You know, if, if you're Democratic-leaning, it's not okay for you to be a Republican. That's not relative. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and the same on the other side. And so one argument is we're actually past that because it has not given us as a culture what we expected it to, the peace that we expected it to. And so how can the church kind of look forward as a group together in our city, right, and say, what is next? Is this, this 
very confused absolutism that we're living through in our yeah. culture. Um, and how can we approach that with um, kind of where the God has brought the church that's up a, to this point? That's a big question. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, okay. There's a thought that says postmodernism died at 9-11. Because at 9-11, a horrible thing happened, and pretty much the entire world agreed for once that that was evil. So now the sort of assertion is that we are living in post-postmodernism. Hey, I don't know what that means exactly, but I do view it as an opportunity. Because so much of my upbringing was against modernism that was trying to argue with people about evolution or this, that, or the other, or some kind of cosmology. I think it's an opportunity where a lot of the... the bolts on the furniture of the deck have been removed. And so there's an opportunity to have relational conversations in community. It's a little bit unsettling at times, but I'm not threatened. I think it's a great thing, candidly. Ben? Well, yeah, I agree that it's an opportunity. And for me, I think, um, I mean, in addition to the truths of Scripture, right, given truths of Scripture, uh, the gospel is always going to be a huge thing. I think that this terrible confusion and anger and stuff that we're speaking into, I think our, our community has the opportunity to, to communicate so loudly, like us loving one another, were that to actually happen in the church, would be an amazing, I mean, it's just going to be more evident than it's ever been, um, especially as we become more and more uh, dependent upon uh, virtual communication, as so much of our society is formed around unreal relationships. Um, mm. We don't know how to relate to one another. We don't know how to know one another, how to have honest conversations with one another. And if the church becomes a place of community, true, loving community, I just think that's going to be a massive um, advantage. It's going to be a massive uh, welcome place for people that are lost and wondering what to do. Regardless of what the next theory is. Because yep. I'm sure the next theory is going to be hard. <laughs> the next theory is going to take is we're going to like, what? Right. Who said that? Uh, but if we come back.